Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. It is Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is the day that kicks off what the church has traditionally called Passion Week. It's the last week of Jesus' life, a week so jam-packed and so important that three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, devote fully a third of their content just to telling that part of the story of Jesus. John? John says he tells a story through the entire second half of the book of John. Palm Sunday commemorates what people have traditionally called the triumphal entry, the, the entry of Jesus on a donkey up through the streets of Jerusalem and into the temple. And there's a whole lot going on just in that period of time that he's writing in, and uh, I want to talk about that. Uh, sometimes we only focus on the celebration, the people singing, the people dancing, but while the people are celebrating, Scripture tells us that the Pharisees are plotting, they're scheming, and and Luke tells us that Jesus, Jesus is weeping. So <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of complexity in this story that we're going to begin to unpack together. And although the week begins with celebration, this triumphal entry, by the end of the week, by Friday, they're calling for Jesus' head. And Chuck Warnock asked this question. He says of this day, if this is such a glorious Sunday for all Christians, what goes wrong by Friday that Jesus will find himself betrayed by one of his disciples, arrested by the high priest's guard, accused by a coalition of religious leaders, tried by the Roman governor, and sentenced to die the death of a common criminal? Death by crucifixion. I think that's an outstanding question, and I think I've stumbled on the answer. I think the answer is people's unmet expectations. I think because people didn't get what they wanted or expected, something happened in their heart that blinded them to the beauty of what was actually happening in this moment. Now, we're in a series called Beyond Expectation, and our touchstone verse has been Ephesians 19, excuse me, Ephesians 3. If there's an Ephesians 19 in your Bible, you need to get another Bible. Uh, Ephesians 3, 19 through 21. Let me read it to you. It's Paul's prayer that we would know God's love that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And he says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask in or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever, and then a big emphatic amen. I was talking... I was talking to my mom about this passage this week, that Ephesians verse, and my mom is what people in Boston would call wicked smart. She's a super smart lady, and she said something to me so smart that I had to write it down because I wanted to share it with you. Here's what she said. She said, just because God can do immeasurably more than I ask or imagine doesn't mean that the thing I ask or imagine is necessarily something God wants to do. Yeah, let me read that to you again. That's worth pondering. Just because God can do, and he can, immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine doesn't mean that the thing that I ask for or the thing that I am imagining is necessarily something that God wants to do. And if that's the case, then I now have to deal with my own unmet expectations. What if 
that what if God has a better idea? What if my idea, my expectation, my ask isn't actually the best thing for me? That's the story of Palm Sunday. The people were expecting something on a grand scale. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, was wanting to do something on an even grander scale. Something beyond what they would ask for or could even imagine. And the people were missing it that day because they were locked into their own expectations. And when their expectations weren't met, they became very, very angry. Because that's what happens with unmet expectations. Have you ever told a toddler no? Did they go, okay. The stomp and the scowl and the scream. And we can go, oh, those are the terrible twos. You know what? Those are the terrible me's. Uh, that is what goes on in my nature when I don't get my own way. And I think that's the story of Palm Sunday. Let, let me tell you what I mean. I, I'm going to read you this story. Now, now stay with me. This is a fairly long passage of scripture from Matthew 21. It says, as they approached Jerusalem, and, and Jesus is, uh, they is Jesus and the disciples and those following, as they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If, anything says any, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. So in other words, go into town, steal a donkey, and if they say, what are you doing? Just say, it's okay, Jesus needs them. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and, and spread them on the road. Luke, Luke tells us that these branches are also being waved. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. That's a nice way of saying they were mad. Now, let me, let me paint a picture for you. Let me, let me give you the backstory. This is Passover. It's why Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Passover was one of the three pilgrimage festivals that every Jewish family had to observe by traveling to Jerusalem. And so the city for a pilgrimage festival would swell to five times its normal size. And when a city swells to five times its normal size, you can't fit everyone in the city. So, so every inn is taken. Uh, houses are renting out rooms, but it still can't contain the people. So they begin to camp on the Mount of Olives on both sides of the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is the road that leads from Jericho, Bethphage, up to Jerusalem. So the hillsides are packed with people along the main thoroughfare going up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has been staying in Bethany. Bethany is where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so before he comes to Jerusalem for Passover, he goes and hangs out with Lazarus, Mary, 
and Martha. Now, word had gotten out that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, so scripture says crowds come to Bethany because they want to get their eyes on Lazarus. They want to see this man Jesus has raised from the dead. So many, in fact, that the Pharisees realize not only is Jesus a problem, but Lazarus is a problem as well, and so they says that they plot to kill him. So there's already a crowd in Bethany, and Jesus travels from Bethany through Bethphage through Jericho, which is the city of priests, up to Jerusalem. And along the way, he stops a couple times. And in one stop, he heals 10 lepers. Maybe you remember that story. Nine take off, one comes back and says, thank you. When you heal 10 people, people begin to hear about it. And so the crowd would swell again. Then he heals a man that's born blind, again, on the road where everyone is traveling because this is a pilgrimage festival. So by the time Jesus comes within sight of Jerusalem, there would have been a massive and very excited crowd that was following him. There is this train of peasants following Jesus up to Jerusalem. Now hold that thought. Jesus is traveling toward Jerusalem from the east, but there is another procession about the same time that would have been coming from the west. Historians record that the governor of this area, in this case Pontius Pilate, would come from Caesarea by the sea where he lived during the hot months because it was so much cooler. He would travel to Jerusalem as well to observe these festivals, not because he was religious, but because he was worried. And he led Pontius Pilate, a procession of Roman soldiers and cavalry, cavalry, cavalry is another thing, from the west into the city. Listen to this. So, so bear, bear in mind, right, as Jesus approaches from the west with a crowd of peasants, Pilate approaches from the east with a crowd of soldiers. Each soldier was clad in leather armor, polished to a high gloss, and on each centurion's head, hammered helmets gleamed in the bright sunlight. At their sides, sheathed in their scabbards, were swords crafted from the hardest steel, and in their hands, each centurion carried a spear, or if he was an archer, a bow with a sling of arrows across his back, as drummers beat the cadence of the march, for this was no ordinary entrance into Jerusalem. It was the practice of the Roman governor to travel to Jerusalem in order to maintain order during these feasts. And at the Passover in particular, Jesus coming from the east, Pilate coming from the west, on a collision course, it turns out, at the temple. Because Pilate was on his way to the fortress of Antonia. This is a fortress that was built that overlooked the temple courtyards. Let me show it to you. It's a big one. Looks just like this. This is where Jesus would have been tried before Pilate. And because the temple was the center of religious, financial, political, and community life, if trouble broke out, this is where it was going to break out. Eighty years earlier, there had been an insurrection. There had been a rebellion. And it took place, it had its origination five miles from Jesus' hometown. And so Rome sent their legions to put this, this rebellion down. And, and after they put it down there, they marched on Jerusalem where they killed another 2,000 people who were accused of being a part of the rebellion. Pilate wasn't fooling around. His entrance into Jerusalem was meant 
to speak a message to the Jewish people, and that was basically, you better keep it locked down. Because if you try anything, I'm coming after you, and I'm coming after you hard. So Jesus is on the eastern side of the city. And as he begins to approach the city, he sends his disciples to find him a colt to ride on. Now, as you read the Gospels, you realize Jesus never rides anything. Maybe he rides a boat from time to time. So if Jesus sends his disciples and says, I want to ride on the the colt of a donkey into the city, he's being very intentional and he is making a statement. This would have evoked in the, in the hearts and the minds of the people imagery drawn straight out of Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly. We read this a moment ago. Daughter of Zion, shout. Daughter Jerusalem, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a messianic prophecy about the arrival of a deliverer that would set Israel free from her oppressors. As you read on, it speaks of a conflict between two powers where the people of God are ultimately victorious. One more thing to hold in the back of your mind. This is Passover. What was Passover? It was the festival that celebrates Israel's deliverance out of captivity in Egypt where God showed his power over another world power that was holding his people in oppression, leading them through the Red Sea and into the land of promise. So people would not have had to work very hard to go, Egypt, Rome, Moses, Jesus, deliverer, deliverer. And we need to remember how and why they celebrated Passover. Passover was not just a look back. They celebrated Passover by looking back at what God had done and actively anticipating a restoration of Israel to a place of power and prominence one day in the future. They would tell these stories around the table saying, remember what God did because he's going to do it again. Our deliverer came and our deliverer will come again. God is not finished with us. What he has done before, he will do again. And they're telling these stories as they're huddled around tables in the inns, in the houses where they live, in the tents camped up on the hillside. So the city is humming with the idea of freedom and deliverance and oppressors being toppled, which is why Pilate is there to watch. And into that environment, it's it's an electric environment. Jesus arrives riding on a donkey like a conquering king. And people's response to him is both instantaneous and understandable. It's driven by both a sense of hope and desperation. It stunk to live under Roman occupation. Nobody wanted to do that. There was despair. But yet this hope that one day God might show up to deliver us from our oppressor. And so you see this image of cloaks and, and songs and words that they shout out and, and palm branches. They, they, they lay their cloaks on the roadside. This was a cultural statement. This wasn't a, hey, maybe we don't want the colt's feet to get dirty. When, when a, a, a king had been away and he'd, he'd been away fighting for, on behalf of his people and he came back and there was a procession, a victory procession into the city, the people who were watching him, they would go out to welcome him and they would lay their cloaks on the road lest he tread on the dirt. It was a sign both of worship and adoration and recognition of his kingship. 
and they're cutting palm branches and they're waving them in the air. At this point in time, palm branches had become a sign and a symbol of Jewish nationalism. The palm branch was was the flag of an independent Palestine. A hundred years earlier, a, a priest, Maccabeus the Hammer, uh, if you ever want to give me a nickname, I would like that one. John the Hammer. He had led a religious uprising, had, had overthrown the Seleucids, and he had taken as his sign and symbol a palm branch. He had it stamped on the temple coins. So when people are waving palm branches, they are looking back to another moment where they were set free. They didn't grab palm branches because they were close by and convenient. They grabbed palm branches because they saw in Jesus the fulfillment of their national hopes. This was their great expectation. Our nation will rise again. And they are crying out, Hosanna, which means, please help. Uh, It's also translated as, as, save us. So they are crying out for deliverance. They're seeing in Jesus their deliverer. And lest anyone miss it, they... They they follow it up with, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they are shouting out a prayer that anticipates its answer in Jesus. They're praying with a particular outcome in mind. This is their great expectation. And they add this phrase, in case anybody missed it, son of David, which was a loaded name at a loaded moment in history, hearkening back again to their greatest king who ruled at the height of their prominence nationally and in the world, the one who would now return Israel to her glory days. So they're celebrating God's victory over Egypt. They're they're looking forward to another moment of freedom. They're laying down robes. They're they're waving palm branches. They're shouting out a prayer of deliverance. It, there is this national fervor as Jesus approaches the city, and everybody is yelling, this is it. It's time. We're about to be set free. There are two reasons people were praising Jesus that day. The first, for what he had done for them, right? They started with Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, the healing of the lepers, the healing of the blind man. Jesus had, had someone said that in his, in his earthly ministry, there was a period of three years where he essentially eradicated illness from Palestine because people came out bringing their sick. Remember the stories that say the crowds became so great, Jesus couldn't even hang out in a town or a village. He had to go outside in the wilderness and the people still found him. They had seen what he had done, but they were also coming out and praising him for what they hoped he would do for them. We see what you've done, and we're anticipating this thing in the future. They saw in Jesus a way to be free from Roman oppression, and they had an expectation of what freedom would look like and how it would come about. Jesus, however, is about to fail to meet all of those expectations because Jesus is coming up the road from Bethany, up the hill, the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem, not to embrace a crown, but to embrace a cross. See, it's not in our nature to conquer evil with peace or humility or forgiveness, but it is in his, which is why people are about to have some unmet expectations. Isaiah 55, 
God speaks and he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I understand how people came to the conclusion that Jesus was going to free him from Roman oppression. I, I can understand, identify with, have empathy for how they placed their expectation of what they needed on Jesus. I, I can be empathetic because that's me. I can't tell you the number of times I feel it's a really good idea to explain to Jesus how he should best serve me. This is what I need, and if you will just do this, I will be fine. That's what they're saying. God, this is what I need, and if you just do this, everything is going to be amazing. But the problem with putting my great expectations on God is that God is a lot smarter than me, and he's even more committed to my future than I am. And he wants to do something for me better than what I am wanting for myself because I'm not smart enough to want it. You tracking with me so far? That's why he says he can and will do more than we would ask or imagine. He could leave it to us. John, I'll just do whatever you want. I'll do what you ask and I'll do what you imagine. I'd be like, great, and I would live my entire life in fourth place, probably 12th place, because it's beyond my imagination. So, so look at what Jesus does. The crowd's going nuts. I mean, it is a party. It, I don't have the words to describe how electric this must have been. People are singing and they're shouting and they're, they're waving palm branches. They, they feel like they're on the precipice of liberation. They're, they're excited, full of anticipation. And in this atmosphere of joyful anticipation and celebration, Luke says Jesus stops, he looks at them, and he begins to weep. Luke 19, 41. As he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place. Why? Because you did not recognize it when God visited you. When it says Jesus weeps, that doesn't mean he tears up a little bit. That's the word for a lament, a soul, a heart that is rending, being torn in two. Because he knows what it is going to cost people when they cheer for the wrong team. They're not celebrating Team Jesus. They're not celebrating the goodness of God as he wants to express it. They are, they are celebrating Team Me, what I'm about to get and what I want. N.T. Wright, I love this quote. He says, Palm Sunday is an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch of what we think we need and what God has provided. They were putting their hopes, their dreams, their expectations on Jesus. He became a vehicle for the fulfillment of their desires rather than aligning somehow with the work of God that was being done in and through him. So they put on Jesus their hopes for the restoration of Israel their hopes and their definition of freedom, their hopes for an independent Palestine, their idea of how peace could be achieved. They had an idea of what it would look like when God put things right, and that's what they're longing for, and that's what they're celebrating. 
our hopes and our dreams are about to be fulfilled. But God wanted to do something beyond expectation. He didn't want to destroy an evil power. He wanted to destroy the power of evil. Do you understand that distinction? That the, the, the demonic influence, the evil influence of Rome as it came against the people of God was a very powerful force, but there was a more powerful, a darker, a more evil power behind it, and that's what God was wanting to deal with. He was wanting to come against the works of hell to pull the teeth of Satan and destroy the power of sin, hell, and death. Remove the power of evil, not an evil power. This was his beyond expectation. He didn't just want to free us from an oppressor. He wanted to free us from oppression. And when people failed to recognize that that's what God was doing, that, that how they were to come to peace, it broke the heart of God because he knew what it was going to cost them. If our hope is in God doing what we think is best, we're going to be disappointed. And then we become angry. And then we call for blood. That's the story of Passion Week. Scripture says that we only see in part. We only know in part. We even only prophesy in part. Yes, Jesus was arriving on a cold, and that was the sign of a victorious king, but that was only a part of the story. The rest of the story was that the one who arrived on a donkey would be an emissary of peace. The war horse was for Pilate. It was not for Jesus. He arrived this way to, to, to announce peace, shalom, the, the rightness of God, while people are calling for war. They're saying, in essence, we know how to achieve peace. You kill Romans. And if we kill Romans, we will have peace. And so they missed a powerful opportunity, an invitation to join God in what he was doing and experience an everlasting peace in the midst of their chaos. They thought their chaos had to be abated, had to be dealt with for them to experience peace. And Jesus is showing up going, hey, I don't care what a mess the world is right now. Scripture says those who the Son has set free are free indeed. I can bring peace to you in the middle of all of this if you will release your expectations to me. That's why Jesus' heart broke. They didn't recognize what God was doing among them. If our hope, as I've said, I'm going to say it again, if our hope is in God doing what we think is best, we are going to be disappointed. Here's the thing about disappointment. Disappointment leads to frustration. Frustration leads to anger. And none of us are ever at our best when we are angry. It's no small wonder to me that the crowd that was calling for a king would soon be calling for a cross. They had welcomed Jesus. They had. They, they had welcomed Jesus. But you know what? They didn't want Jesus. They wanted Judas. They wanted someone who would take power by any means necessary. And they didn't get it. And so I think there are two reasons why the people were crawling out for blood three days later. And they both have to do with unmet expectations. When, when they saw Jesus in chains, standing before Pilate, I think they would have experienced significant anger and significant fear. Anger 
that Jesus had failed to live up to their expectations, that they were not going to be free as they expected. And fear that Rome was now going to punish them. Pilate and his men are in the fortress of Antonia. They're looking out over everything that is happening. He is not blind to the fact that Jesus is riding in on a colt as a conquering king, and the people are calling out for deliverance. I wonder if they began to call for Jesus' blood because they felt they somehow needed now to show their fealty to Rome, lest they also be killed for preaching insurrection and rebellion against Caesar. I don't know. It's not in the story. But as I read the story, I think, you know, that would make a lot of sense to me. They had cried out, help. God save us. But God saving them did not look like what they expected. I was sitting, wrestling with this message this week. and You know, when, when we have the, the privilege to teach and share what we're learning from Jesus, especially as we come to application, it's almost always something that God has just hammered out in our own hearts. So I'm, I have all of this historical perspective, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. But then I come to the place as I'm writing a message where I'm like, so what? Um, and, and so what means, God, what, what do we do with this information? Like, this is awesome. I love to study. I love to learn. But, you know, how is this going to change my life? And God began to talk to me about releasing my expectations to him. And I have a lot of them. If God wants to do something beyond my expectation, and and I fully believe he does, I probably won't be able to fully anticipate it because it's beyond my imagination. And so if I spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out what it's going to look like when God does what God does, I'm probably going to be looking at the wrong target. You tracking with me? That's what beyond my imagination means. I may have a hope. I may have an inclination. I may have a sense in my spirit, but I don't have a solid target. And, and, and if I start working toward a particular outcome when it's still maybe fuzzy, then I could find myself actually working against what God wants to do in me or what God works to do for me, like people on that first Palm Sunday. He addressed three areas of expectation in my life. Some of these may resonate with you. First is my expectations of others. God, I just need this person too. If only they would be like this. If only they could become this way. If only, if only, if only. And the fact of the matter is some people will never be who I expect them to be. And for that, we should all say thank you, Jesus. Because who I expect them to be is probably not who God wants them to be because he's doing something beyond my imagination in them as well. Others' expectations of me. That was the other one he was starting to talk to me about. I'm always going to disappoint somebody. If I haven't disappointed you yet, get ready. It's coming. If my goal is to become the best Christ follower I can, it's a good goal. If my goal is to become whoever I think you want me to be, we're both going to become frustrated. The third are the expectations I have of myself. You and I are all works in progress. And if you don't know that about me, let me just tell you very clearly, I am a work in progress. If you don't think so, ask Tyler. He'll let you know. Yeah, my dad's a hot mess some days. 
And sometimes I get so down on myself because of my response or lack of response. And it's not a fair or a healthy expectation because what God wants to grow me into is beyond my imagination. What God wants to grow you into is be you can't see it yet. He's the only one of whom Scripture says, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. All your days were ordained before one of them came to be. Ordained by who? You? No! Jesus! So I told the Lord, God, I'm really working hard to bring some of these things to pass. Have you ever heard God chuckle? I mean, I'm sitting there with my Bible and a notebook. I'm like, God, I'm working so hard to bring these things into, into fruition. And, and I swear I heard God chuckle. Almost like, a, oh, you're so cute. Not mad, not deriding, but just kind of loving. That's, that's cute, John. And he said, it's not by power. It's not by might. It's by my spirit that these things are done. Then he asked me this question. What if, you're, what if what you're working really hard on isn't what I want to do? How hard is it? And it's hard. Gosh, I want to be in control. But how hard is it to go, okay, God, I get it. Jesus in the garden, not my will, but your will. Here's what I'm learning to do with my unmet expectations. The times, the moments where I feel great frustration. I want to encourage you, perhaps, to do this as well. Here's the first. Communicate my trust in God. Things don't look the way I'd like them to work. Look, excuse me. They're not turning out quite the way I expected. With my family, with my whatever. But God, I trust you. God, I trust you. I'm having to say, God, I trust you. You're in, you're in control. And with that comes the second thing. Releasing my expectations to God. Praying Jesus' prayer. Even so, not my will, but your will be done. God, I've got some really good ideas. I mean, they're, they're amazing about what we could do together. God, I've got some amazing things about, about my family. About God, I've got some amazing but I'm going to release those expectations to you. You know the danger of an expectation? An expectation at its core says, you owe me. Doesn't it? That's what an expectation says. I have the right to determine what should happen. You owe me. I never want to look at God and go, by the way, you owe me. Here's the third thing. and We're almost done. Look for the goodness of God in my circumstances. You know, it's not turning out the way I expected. I may still be in that in-between season between Good Friday and the resurrection. Things look a little dark right now. Where is God good? And when I see the great goodness of God, then I have to communicate gratitude. God, I trust you. I release my expectations to you. I believe you're good. And then, because God doesn't want me just sitting on my can, do the next right thing. Not the next thing that's going to lead to whatever outcome I'm trying to engineer, but the next right thing that the Lord puts in front of me. God, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure this out in my family and bring this person into alignment. And Well, John, today I want you to go take your neighbor a cup of coffee. That's part of releasing my expectations and living fully into his presence and his promise in the moment. As we close this morning, 
I want to encourage us to turn our hearts in that direction. If there are some places where you have expectations that have not yet been met, let me say two things. One, this doesn't mean they won't. That could be a God dream and a God promise. It may not look the way you expect, but don't hear me say, don't expect anything from God because God is a giver of very good gifts. But two, if we're holding too tightly to those expectations, perhaps this morning we can say with open hands, not my will, but yours be done. Let's set our hearts to declare the goodness of God rather than the rightness of our expectations. Leave the outcomes to him. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold unswervingly to hope for he who promised is faithful. Psalm 27 says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Let's declare this together. Don't say it to me. Say it to him. You are good. You are faithful. You are good. You are faithful. And you love me. Lord, this is our confession and our declaration. You have promised that you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so as we look through Good Friday and the cross to the resurrection and the empty tomb, we declare that you have not left us, you have not forgotten nor forsaken us, and new life is on its way to us. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen and amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.